Welcome to Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by Draeger. Draeger products protect, support, and save lives. Firefighting equipment you can trust. You've tuned in for compelling conversation on hot topics impacting Canada's fire service. I'm Hope BC Fire Chief Tom DeSorcy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our podcast. I'm Grant Cameron, editor of Firefighting in Canada magazine. On today's podcast, I'm speaking to Tyler Pelkey, Deputy Chief of the City of Red Deer Emergency Services in Alberta. He's been in the fire service for more than two decades. 28 years ago, at the age of 14, Tyler went through a horrific ordeal. One night at his house, an assailant murdered his friend, assaulted Tyler, slit his throat with a kitchen knife, threw a blanket on him, doused it with gas, then set him on fire and left him to die. Somehow, Tyler survived. His assailant was caught and sent to prison. Later, Tyler found it within himself to confront his attacker in prison and find peace and purpose in his life through a journey of forgiveness. He now speaks to audiences across North America about the power of forgiveness and how understanding your purpose in life is key to dealing with adversity. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Thanks for having me, Grant. Appreciate it. So I, I guess maybe we could just start by the be- at the beginning. Um, if you could explain uh, what happened that night. Um, I believe it was November 17th, 1990. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, November 17th, 1990. Um, grew up kind of in a single-parent home uh, since I was a little kid. And uh, my mom and I had just moved to a small farming community uh, about an hour outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba. It was a bit of a, a good thing for her in the sense that uh, she had been working towards her career uh, in human resource management, and she got a got a job with a fairly large printing company called uh, DW Friesens. Chances are, if you pull the book off your desk uh, from a Canadian publisher type thing, you'd see that they were printed uh, in this little farming community. Altona was the yeah. community? Okay, it was like a yeah. Mennonite-type uh, area? Predominantly Mennonite uh uh, farming community. Uh, yeah. Town of about, uh, I think it was about 2,900 people, and there was probably about 29 churches in town. So okay. <laughs> very quaint, faith-based community, I guess. It's kind of the best way to put it. So, yeah, nobody nobody locked their doors at night, that sort yeah, of thing, eh? Generally, yeah, generally nobody locked their doors. And my, my then-parents at the time had decided they were going to go away for the weekend. I'd moved to this community just in September. This took place in November, obviously, like I mentioned. And in that time, I'd made friends with a, a gent by the name of Curtis Clausen. And Curtis and I were both uh, goalies in hockey, and it was kind of a, a connecting passion, I guess, if you will. And we, we got to be just uh, great friends kind of very quickly. And out of that, um, I had the opportunity that weekend to either go to Curtis's place for the weekend or hang out at my place. So that night, actually, we were we were at a team dance. I'd hung out with the hockey team. And, and that night, we bumped into a gent that's kind of well-known to the community. He was in grade 12. His name was Earl Giesbrecht. And so Earl Giesbrecht uh, was 17 at the time. And he was kind of known to the community in the sense that before I got there, he, he had been somebody who, I wouldn't say in trouble with the law, but definitely known to the law. And so that night, we saw him at the dance. But one thing led to another, another in the evening. I got back to my place um, and had invited a few people back. Nothing huge, just a couple guys from the hockey team, and then they were gone by about 12, 
And about half hour after they were gone, we heard a knock at the back door. And uh, thinking it was probably one of those gents, we just went went to the back door to let him in. And there was Earl standing there, all dressed in black. And he had a duffel bag. Um, We invited him in uh, after standing at the door for probably 10 minutes. One of those instances where by kind of an unwanted guest, but you don't really know how to get rid of him, I guess. So we ended up inviting him in, and um, for the next kind of hour, we, hour and a half, we just started watching a movie, and, and uh, the curiosity got the better of me. So I asked him what's in the duffel bag, a kind of bit. bit. He's all dressed in black, and he said he'd been out breaking enters. If I was being honest at 14 years old, I didn't know if I really believed him or not, I guess. The, the movie had ended probably about 2, 2.30 in the morning, and uh, Kurt and I had had to get uh, get up early actually for a hockey tournament the next day. And so I'm not really sure exactly to this day and kind of how it worked, but at some point my, my friend Curtis and I were kind of in my room, and Earl was gone for a second. And <clears throat> what I failed to mention about the bag, that you know when I asked him, hey, what, what's in the bag and what he'd been doing is uh, he had told us previously he had, you know, he'd been out in breaking enters, these were the tricks of the trade, he'd had gloves and flashlights and things you, I guess you would think if somebody thought about if you're going to break into houses, what would you need? But he also pulled out at that time, pulled out a, a gun. He had a, a 357 Magnum handgun fully loaded and he'd shown it to us. And then I had taken a look at it, cursed and wanted to see it. And I'd given it back to him and he had put the bullets back in. So fast forward now, we're standing in our room and he was gone for a second. And I turned around and uh, he's standing there pointing the gun at us between us and the doorway. We couldn't get out of the room. Both Chris and I kind of asked, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? And and all we kind of heard was, uh, well, you know, you know why I'm doing this. And we weren't really sure. So he uh, asked me to tie up Kurt with his hands behind his back, and 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 then uh, and then did the same to me. He put uh, masking tape over our eyes, and then and then he separated Kurt and I. He put Kurt in my mom's bedroom and and left me in my bedroom. And then that was the last time I had ever saw Kurt again. So yeah. The next couple hours. Um, He'd be gone out of my room. He'd be back in my room. At one point, he was unhooking, you know, my stereo, and I would ask him why he was doing this, and I still got the same answer that I that I knew. And um, I was sexually molested by Earl on one one visit in, um, and and again, like I said, this spanned over over a couple hours. I was the odd time I was asking him as this kind of went on, what time it was. I was trying to keep track of what time things were happening. So you didn't know what was happening to your friend in the other room, right? Uh, I didn't really have a clue, no. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he came into my room about four four thirty in the morning, and uh, he he at one point I'd heard a bunch of banging in the other room. Uh, he came back in and he said he was going to let us go, and and I didn't really um, up until that point I'd really kind of been honestly just doing whatever he asked and trying to go along with things, that, just trying to figure out how to get myself out of the situation, I guess if you will. Yeah, I see. And uh, so he came back in, says he let us go. He took the masking tape off my eyes. Uh, the stranger part was that he, that he um, wanted me to kneel down and turn around. So he said, I'm going to cut the tape off your hand. Yeah. And um, at that point, kind of in one motion, uh, kind of further to your intro, he had gone to the kitchen already and grabbed a, a kitchen knife um, that he was going to cut the tape off my hands with. And um, instead of cutting the tape off my hands, he pulled my neck back and, and actually slit my throat while he told me that Curtis was dead, um, that, he, that he had killed Curtis. I just kind of went limp. It was in the doorway of my bedroom. And as, I mean, as you can imagine, at 14, I knew I was hurt badly. I just didn't know how bad. You didn't pass out at that time? You just... I, I didn't at that time, no. I actually, um, uh, uh, again, I, I would try to talk. I would try to say something and air would just come out of my throat. And he was in the living room and I was in my bedroom. I closed the door and he uh, was gone for a second, came back in, pushed me on the ground and had uh, grabbed a, my, my little house had a, a wood-burning fireplace and he would grabbed a, one of the the uh, shovels that you'd use for ash cleaning up your fireplace and 
push that in the side of my neck and I and I just remember thinking to myself, well I'll just pretend like I'm going unconscious but he'll he'll leave me alone. Um he did for a bit. He he he, he kinda of stopped uh, what he was doing with the the shovel in my neck and then um uh, I just kind of laid still for a bit and at that point he grabbed the blanket off my bed and just covered me in it and a few seconds later uh the light I kind of saw the light go dark and then I just smelt gas or or kerosene or something and he had been dousing the blanket on top and then I just remember hearing the you know um, what you would what you would hear from kind of a starting a campfire with gasoline like we shouldn't be how did you get out of the house or do you even remember after lighting the blanket on fire he closed the door and left the room as you can imagine, I'm being burned alive. I'm, I'm definitely not unconscious. I was faking. I just remember hearing or, or sensing kind of get up and go. And uh, and I was able to roll over and, and, and open my bedroom door. And he had started lighting a fire in the other bedroom. Or sorry, in the other living room. I came out of my bedroom, very small house. He sees me, reaches across the, the couch and kind of hits me a couple of times and, and asks me why I won't die. And then I took off out the back door. But at this time, there was a fire growing behind him quite quite uh, quickly and then behind me as well yeah i just remember thinking to myself if he's going to go out the back i'll go out the front and uh, uh it was a door that we never really used uh i had some boxes in front of it that kind of thing and finally just uh i ended up getting cleared out of the way and got myself out the front door and got to my neighbor's place rang the doorbell it was 4 30 in the morning we were an hour away from winnipeg so when i got into the Got into my neighbor's place. I called the volunteer fire and ambulance. And yeah. uh, in the interim, I had written down a bunch of information because I didn't wasn't sure if I was going to make it. To quite quite the drive. There was no stars back then. I guess no air helicopter kind of thing. They they took me to a little hospital in in Altona and then put me basically back in the ambulance and shipped me to Winnipeg. And I woke up a few days later and I'd suffered third degree burns to 25% of my body. My my throat took about 200 stitches inside and out to to sew everything up. My carotid. Uh, had been missed by about a dime's width. So how did you get through this? Like, you know, there's the physical recovery. Of course, you were burned, I think, 25% of your body. But mentally, how did you get through this? Did you, you know, have a network around you or some sort of sport network to help you? Or You know, great question. Um, yeah. The first, the first three months, you know, I mean, I was 14 years old. I had my family all around me, but... The first three months were just focused on obviously getting out of the hospital. I'd set myself some some goals very quickly on, and it, my throat would cause me issues probably for the next uh, year and a half, two years. Actually, it took took quite a while to to heat, to deal with all the uh, complications from from the challenges with my throat. And so I was back. I was out of the hospital within kind of three months by the, uh, 1991. I was end of January. I was back in in high school, and that next year there was a preliminary hearing and a trial where Roe was convicted of. Uh, first degree murder and attempted murder. You know that all happened within within a year, which is definitely not the how fast the, our justice system moves nowadays. Um, but um, it, so it really, honestly, that first little bit, I bet you the best way to describe it was was, was almost autopilot. And over time, I've kind of taken a retrospective look, I guess, if you will. And for me, I've always been fascinated with the notion of how people face challenges and what happens inside of us when we're exposed to adversity. And while I was definitely kind of experiencing a range of emotions throughout that journey, you know, I mean, yeah. here and then, you know, figuring out my way through high school, um, I was fairly, fairly blessed and fortunate in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't experience significant depression as part of that, and I, I didn't experience, I guess, significant um, uh, post-traumatic type type uh, um, symptoms, I guess, if you will. I, I yeah, through, I see. I went through a fairly normal, probably journey of of, of 
you know, um, some unforgiveness of myself, um, you know, some, for, some, some, some emotions related to Earl, I guess, if you will, and just the situation. Um, but, but what I had that some people don't have in some of the, and tra- some of the trauma that, you know, whether it's responders or not that I was exposed to is I had a very solid social support network. I had, I had the ability to talk about things and I did. And so talk was so, so kind of key. And so for me, actually, over the years, as I, kind of grew into this profession that I kind of landed into. I remember grade 12 deciding I wanted to be a firefighter and my aunt, my, uh, I think it was my aunt who took me aside and said, you realize you've been in a burn war before, right? Like, you, you know, kind of give your head a shake. Um, our audience is, you know, firefighters and chiefs. So what, what yeah. made you become a firefighter? The biggest reflection I had or the best way I can describe it was just how, how responders helped me and then the ability to be able to kind of take that example that was set for me and be and go you know I'm, I want to be a part of this and do something different every day and not really knowing yeah. what that meant but then seeing kind of as I got involved with the volunteer service there I really saw um, what community leadership looked like and kind of helping people up and helping people along the way I guess if that makes sense I see so, okay yeah. so um just just back to your story though um mm-hmm. so I, I guess you you found that forgiveness is a big part of the I guess the healing process and you, you also, uh, you went and visited your assailant in jail. That journey, you know, when I first told it, all you basically heard was just what I told you the story. And then after the years, it was, uh, you know, as I've grown and matured and, and kind of figured my journey out, there's been more to offer with respect to dealing with adversity. And what I talk about, I guess, if you will, is what a rest is kind of a recipe for resilience. And th- there's a ton of research out there on resilience and, and a ton more, you know, I'll call myself an amateur academic, in, in 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 a sense that I know just enough to be dangerous sometimes with some of the, yeah. with some of the, yeah, with some of the. Uh, but you've been through it, so you can speak from experience. So that's a big thing, you know. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So I've tried to put some of that together, and so back to your question, you know, just w- with the notion of of forgiveness and and how does that fit? And for me, um, my mom came to me. We we went through that that journey of being angry, and I'll say wanting revenge, but maybe not. I don't know that there was a, a huge revenge component, but it was, hey, you know, I want some restitution maybe, right, or restoration. So we went through that component early on, and that really didn't, you didn't really do much with that, and, and it didn't didn't really serve anybody very well. I just got to a place in life where I, I just realized that, I remember my grandma saying to me at one point in the hospital early on, you're still here for a reason. She didn't say this happened for a reason. She didn't say this happened to Curtis for a reason. She just said, you're still here for a reason, and I remember just kind of keeping that as one of my North stars, I guess you will. And so wanting to kind of approach what that looked like, I, I I went down the road of figuring out what, what it meant to live life with a purpose and finding your purpose. And, and um, so I could, I, I could find that serving others, helping others, um, being maybe an example of, of others through, through the fire service, but then also through conversations like today. Is there any kind of overarching uh, advice that you can give to somebody who's facing adversity is, you know, is the message to make like every day just count or I think so but I think I think part of what you need to do um part of what you need to do is some pre-work around resilience I guess and what I mean by that is if I look at my journey both as a responder my journey of forgiveness you know meeting meeting the person face to face who tried to kill me many years yeah. ago taking back that control there's really pieces that I think that we can learn from uh and I'll just use the responder community because that's the world I live in but we have so many uh, amazing strong resilient people um, that, you know, and don't get me wrong, the world can take its toll. The calls they go to, the, the the stresses they're exposed to can take their toll. Yeah, there's an amazing amount of knowledge and and, and um, uh, things we can learn from what what makes people so resilient. And so for me, it's 
it's kind of four areas. I talk a lot about um, the importance of social supports slash mental toughness. So what does it mean to be mentally tough? It doesn't mean that you're tough, but it means that you realize there's days that are going to be rough and you figure out how to dump your cup out and, and who can help you with that. I think there's times where uh, you need to really understand that you have a purpose on this life, and that doesn't necessarily mean your job. It means, you know, what were you built for? What, what uh, What's that what's that burning thing that wakes you up in the morning every day? Is that helping people? Is that, what does that look like? Do you, do you find that, like, giving back is a big part of the healing process as well? Uh, I think so, and there's actually quite a, quite a bit of research around helping others and volunteering yeah. and pick a word, I guess, if you will, but uh, it's pretty hard to be... I shouldn't say, I was going to say it's pretty hard to be kind of down on yourself and, and have hard days if you're helping others. I, I, I'm careful in how I say that because actually so many people that, that do both. But what, where, I'm, where I'm going with that, it's, it's kind of core, is simply that when we get out and help others, it shows us uh, how much we have to offer. and It gives us a moment to reflect on others, to, to see, the, to see the, the kind of the blessings that we have the ability to bring. It helps us, helps us kind of at that you know, very intimate social connection where we're human beings, we, we need to connect socially. It's kind of a journey um, to also help ourselves. You know, control and perspective is probably the, one of the other pieces that I learned the most, at least just about fire services. There, there's so much out there that we can't control. We we are, you know, the saying is, is you, you can't unsee what you've seen or unhear what you've heard. And, and you know, I, I think part of the one of the things I talk about in my presentations is the two rules. And the, the one rule I, I learned early when I was in young EMT was Mm-hmm. Um, rule number one is that uh, uh, people die, and rule number two is that EMTs EMTs can't always change rule number one. If you look at life like that, I don't mean to be too black and white, but um, we, we we realize that there's a lot of things in life that we can't control, and when we we try to have a healthy perspective of kind of putting all those pieces together, yeah, helping others, understanding we're here for a reason, um, working on our social supports, working on our mental toughness, kind of growing ourselves as a person. Yeah, we put all that together. You know, at least it's a little bit of a path or to get yourself to a place of of, of figuring out um, yourself and others, I guess, if you will. I see. Do you, do you still have anger, resentment of what happened, or do, how do you channel that? No, I, I don't. I, I don't look in the mirror. You know, I sat across from Earl many. It's probably about seven, eight, nine years ago now when I yeah. went to see him in prison. And I think one of the most, the biggest things I learned kind of come, coming away from that is is realizing that. Um, I went uh, I went for kind of one reason to tell him I forgave him and and secondly I came back with realizing that there was um, realizing that it's very easy to just live in unforgiveness I think there's a lot of us who 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 decide to we'd rather live in offense than kind of understand the peace of forgiveness and what I, I mean see. by that is, is is our emotions take work right um, and and if we're not if we're not kind of continually assessing those against the situation we're in and figuring out ways kind of through that yeah it can be a it can be a struggle and so for me i'm you know i do well i i have a i have a very blessed life i have lots of great people around me who care about me and don't get me wrong there's days there's days where you wonder right right okay <laughs> there's days where you wonder what else life's going to throw at you but it's a matter of perspective right it comes back to that perspective yeah well it's it's good to hear you talking and you know you know you had quite a story to tell and uh you've you've got through it and uh you're helping others as well so that's a great thing you know Tyler, thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're a true inspiration to anybody who's facing a difficult situation, and uh, especially in the fire service. Um, I'm sure our listeners appreciate you sharing your story of resilience here, and uh, hopefully it'll inspire others. Kind words, and thanks for the opportunity. 
Thank you for joining Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by Draeger. Draeger products protect, support, and save lives. Firefighting equipment you can trust. Visit firefightingincanada.com and click on Hot Topics for more episodes.